Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by peer mentor, Nathan William Brown. What does the A stand for in your LGBTQA community? For Nathan, it can stand for ability or asexuality. Nathan is a peer mentor in the community mental health field. Being a peer mentor is a lot different than your typical caseworker-client relationship. Peer mentors are advocates who've been through the system themselves and know what it's like. They work with an individual to help them learn how to advocate for themselves and become more independent. Nathan recently organized LGBTQ abilities to help serve the needs of LGBTQ people who are differently abled. LGBTQ abilities is an advocacy and support organization for individuals who are labeled disabled and struggled to find real support from their community. The purpose of LGBTQ abilities is to bridge the gap between the LGBTQ communities and the disability communities. It can be hard for an LGBTQ individual to be open within the diversity of opinions found in the disability community. It can also be hard for them to find other disabled individuals whom they can relate to on specific issues in an LGBTQ community. LGBTQ abilities will provide advocacy to build networks to connect the LGBTQA and the disability community, as well as helping create supports within the community while helping all communities be fully inclusive. Nathan is on the autism spectrum and has struggled for years with his mental health, including battling severe depression and anxiety disorders. He also identifies as a pan-romantic, gray asexual, which means he can be romantically attracted to people of all genders, but not sexually attracted to others. Many are just hearing about the asexual community, and because of lack of information or misinformation, individuals identifying as asexual are stigmatized similar to those who are differently abled. LGBTQ abilities offers support group exclusively for individuals within the community as well as a support group for these individuals' partners, family, and allies. Nathan, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing good, thanks. Well, I am really happy um, to 
have you here. You know, I know that you were identified as being on the autism spectrum, like I said, I believe you said it at 23. But coming mm-hmm. up as a kid, how were you treated? Well, I was definitely socially awkward and always kind of the weird kid in school. And that, you know, obviously causes a lot of issues, especially with uh, kind of the clickiness and, you know, social groups that tend to form in school based around socialization. And when you don't really know how to socialize properly and are literally trying your hardest all the time to fit in and failing, um, it gets really difficult and there ends up being a lot of bullying and stuff along with that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like you said, um, you were like in your 20s when you were identified, but, you know, often, like you said, there are kids and people don't think that, you know, that people want to no. look at when you have a placard in your car, they expect you to either get out with crutches, you know, to not be able to see, to have something that they want to see that's visible. But being disabled, being differently abled, are people who are as diverse mm-hmm. as being gay. Oh, yeah. And, like, me, my my primary disability is a developmental disability as well as having mental illness that often comes along with having that developmental disability. Like, rates of depression and anxiety with with autism are above, like, 50% of people on the spectrum. And that comes regardless of a person's IQ score, which is often what has been used, at least in the past, though they're moving away from it, is what's been used to kind of judge how functioning you are. Though IQ alone is not a good way to determine functioning. I've seen people who are very successful who fall in like the middle range or even below average IQ and have fairly stable, independent lives. And then I've met other people high on the spectrum who are so overwhelmed anxiety and depression that they can't function at all and I've even been there myself at times and that's probably one of the most difficult parts is you have a high IQ and people just expect that you should have the ability to get over things that you should be Mm -hmm. able to think your way out of it way easier when which I mean, as we're learning more and more about depression and knowledge about mental health is getting out there, we're learning that that is not a good thing to do. Even with someone who is suffering from just depression alone, people can't just think their way out of mental illness. Well, you know, I have a very dear friend who also, you know, uh, is differently abled, and she said, like, she was people would tell her, even in school, that she just wasn't trying, you know, hard enough, you know. She just wasn't trying enough, and she really applied herself. She could be this excellent student. So in many ways, she was failing in school Mm -hmm. and suffering, like you said, from depression until she met someone who recognized that she was – she needed assistance, that she was on this spectrum, and that they were able to – 
interact with her. And like you said, she went on, she's got a good career, but she processes and does things differently. Did you hear that? Oh, that yeah. she just weren't trying hard enough? Like, mm-hmm. I got that all the time. And honestly, what helped me most, the, the times I did best academically were times that I was involved in groups where I actually had people to work one-on-one with me as I worked on assignments because I generally didn't learn well in a typical classroom setting and school in general stressed me out. Like I didn't want to think about homework in school when I got home because like I spent all day in school being bullied and, Mm -hmm. you know, even having teachers that didn't like me and just thought really negatively of me because of symptoms that I didn't even know why I was having them. And neither did they often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, being a kid is hard enough, you know, and being bullied, yeah. you know, just, you know, because kids can be awful, but when you have that, and then the people who you think are supposed to support you, they're sort of looking at you like, you know, yeah, lost cause here, and you're not, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was super mm-hmm. involved in extracurriculars. That's, like mm-hmm. kind of how most of the teachers knew me outside the classroom was, and that's, I think, honestly, what helped me the most was getting involved in all these extracurriculars in high school and middle school. You know, that was mm-hmm. part of it was like, I didn't have many friends. So like mm-hmm. the only way that I could be accepted in a social setting, you know, work like club and sport activities but I wasn't real into sports, so that left mostly the clubs. I did do, like, one year of baseball in high school, but, like, what? that oh. that involvement, though, helped me more than anything in terms of, I think, kind of getting over a lot of the social barriers that I had related to Asperger's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you try, you know, really, you are doing the, you are in your 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 kid's mind. You are trying to navigate this as best as you could. Then you're starting to recognize that, you know, not only are you different in this way, but you're LGBTQ. Okay, you're you're queer. And I mean, did you were you worried about coming out? Did you say like, you know, I've got enough going on. Maybe I just need to just sort of keep this to myself. Oh, for a long time. And honestly, when I when I kind of started having the mental health issues become more severe, when I was starting to get hospitalized, I felt like I kind of put my sexuality on the back burner for years longer. Even after I had started coming out, I kind of reverted and went back in the closet just because dealing with the stigma of the mental health was just too much on its own. And I didn't want to have to deal with, you know, multiple stigmas early on because Mm -hmm. like it was hard enough just dealing with watching family and friends slowly disappear from your life as you're going in and out of these psychiatric hospitals and, you know, I just, I ended up putting it on the back burner for a while. And honestly, I did that really when I first started exploring my sexuality was going to college because I lived in a small town and I never dated. 
I never did any of that. And I didn't really understand my sexuality, but I knew that I wasn't allowed to explore it where I lived. It was mm-hmm. kind of the mentality I had. I lived in a small town, small rural community, you know, population less than 500. Mm-hmm. And you weren't really necessarily allowed to be different at times. And this was the case for many of my classmates, too. I have numerous friends who've come out mm -hmm. since high school. Mm -hmm. You know, because, I mean, like, you first experienced really homophobia um, when you were in the eighth grade. And it it, it also shows that, you know, how for the longest, and although they've debunked that, that people assume there was a reason why people were gay. And, you know, so there's a stigma that, you know, that not only trying to, that maybe perhaps the fact that you were differently abled, that you were suffering from depression, that you were going through all of this. I mean, there were people back then who believed that if you could cure this mental condition, then they wouldn't be gay anymore. And did that ever like, you know, when you first heard that, you know, you knew everything was going on, did you like sort of say, well, would you fix me? You know, fix me and, you know, I don't Not know what really. I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I had fairly open-minded parents. I mean, they were conservative, but not as much when it came to the sexuality issue. Like, mm-hmm. I remember I went to see Brokeback Mountain in theaters with my dad when we when I was mm-hmm. in high school. And it was mm-hmm. like no big deal to us. Like, but at the same time, you know, like, they weren't completely open to it, but they were very, I'd say more accepting than the townsfolk where I lived. Mm-hmm. And they were definitely open to the idea and never really had the value of hating others because they're different. They've, you know, my parents, that's one thing they did really well with me is instilling that you don't hate others, even if they're different than you. Mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, I can imagine that not only being in a small town where LGBTQ people are probably aren't accepted, they're conservative. You also had the a conservative town. You also had we're looking for help, and I'm I'm sure that you know differently abled. You know they had like you said, like we were talking about earlier, they had this whole stigma that they were ready to put you in this box as like maybe you were never gonna fit in. You know you were just like the oddball. Mm-hmm. I mean. How did you break out of that? And, you know, the fact that you were able to take this experience and then become a peer mentor, how did you overcome that? And to be able to identify and empathize to others who were, who were going through the same thing? Well, I mean, even before I was in the mental health system, like heavily, I mean, I've always kind of had the mindset that I wanted to be in kind of the human services or social services type fields. You know, I originally wanted to be a teacher going into college and then switched my major multiple times to, uh, to uh, social work. And then I ended up getting my associate's degree in religious studies. And, you know, so that's kind of always been in my mind, like, it's the one thing that's always made me happy. That's why I liked being involved in 
a lot of these uh, groups, you know, extracurriculars too, is volunteering and stuff and really learning. Like, that's the one thing I encourage everyone. If you're, especially kids on the autism spectrum, like, if you're a parent with kids on the autism spectrum, you have to find a way to get your kids involved in something, either social groups, volunteering, but make sure it's something that they'll enjoy and want to do as well. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's like some, you know, we often talk about, like, when you come out, you have to con- you're continually coming up. You come out, like, you know, as being queer, you come out, like, with all, you know, in each social group that you're in and doing it. But, you know, which, did you, which do you find did you have to come out first? I mean, because I think that even once a day identify that you're on the Asperger's syndrome, uh, spectrum, how did you, did you adapt to that? Did you go like, oh, at last is a name for this? And then were you able to, did you feel the need to when you went around someone, when you were in college, when you were in a work environment and someone started to do that, did you feel the need to out yourself as someone with Asperger's? And which came first, outing yourself as Asperger's or outing yourself as LGBTQ? Well, originally it would have been the LGBTQ because uh-huh. I wasn't I wasn't real, like I said, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 23. Um, but like I said, too, like when I ended up kind of in the mental health system, I ended up in the psych hospitals before I was diagnosed with Asperger's. That's what led to the diagnosis eventually uh-huh. after basically a year and a half in and out of psych hospitals. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, when originally I like, I wasn't even real sure. And like the asexuality community, it wasn't well known at all, especially like 10 years ago, 10, 12 uh-huh. years ago when I was first exploring, you know, my sexuality so I honestly didn't even know what I was when even going into college. Like, I had, hadn't really had any opportunities to explore my sexuality, hadn't really had a real girlfriend or a boyfriend. So it was kind of just, yeah, a journey of discovering it and kind of coming a lot out with my friends who were in the Gay-Straight Alliance there. Like, I got involved in the Gay-Straight Alliance before I was even really fully ready to explore my sexuality just because I believed in the cause. You know, uh-huh. I I was tired of seeing people treated like crap because of who they were and wanted to do something to help and knew that sexuality, at least my own, had been kind of a confusing issue for me and felt comfortable around these people because I was allowed to open up and explore. And originally, yeah, it took me a long time to really find out who I was because the the information just wasn't available back then for the most part. And, I mean, the asexual community was basically, like, not even viewed as part of the LGBT community at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it it's it was kind of viewed negatively yeah and it's viewed negatively often by both sides a lot of people act like we're just making it up when we say we're asexual or that we're 
covering up something like our real sexuality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so it took a long time, really. And I'd, I'd say I came out by mistake along the way. Like when I first came out, I just thought I was bisexual because I had romantic interests in pretty much everyone. Like, like I mm-hmm. had the ability to have romantic interests with anyone, but I never really felt a sexual attraction towards any of those people. You know, because it's interesting because, I mean, we talked about how this is, like you said, sort of recent. Because many people would say you'd hear LGBTQ and they A and, oh, that's for allies. And Mm -hmm. now I hear, you know, I've been to things where more recently when you say A, people are saying that means I'm asexual and they're talking about it. I know that this year, even at Creating Change, like, they're having a, a part that's talking about people who are asexual. It's sort of like, okay, this is what the A is. And to talk about it, because people do have these sort of, you know, misconceptions. Oh, like you, like y'all can say, oh, they just haven't met the right one. They don't know or, or, or you yeah. know, they just don't like sex. You know? And that's not what it's about at all. Yeah. When you were in the mental health, um, and you were trying to figure out, you know, you were dealing with depression and you were dealing with all that. Did you find that with a therapist, were they sensitive to that? Were they trying to deal, to help you deal with that or, or get to the source of your problem? Or were, did they just want to zone right in, like, why you can't find a boyfriend or a girlfriend? You know, I know that once um, I, can, I had had a death in the family, had several deaths in the family, and I went to see a therapist, and her focus was, she said, so you're gay, so you're lesbian. Okay, um, so did you have issues with your mother? Did you have issues with your father? I'm going like, you know, I'm okay with it. I want to I wanna talk about my depression. When you went, yeah. did, you say, did, did they do that like that? Well, do you want to talk about, let's talk about why you haven't found the right person uh, no. and not look um, at the depression? Well, honestly, like, I didn't even discuss that with most of my early therapists. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't something I brought up to them, and they didn't bring it up or ask me about it much. But the mm-hmm. therapist I've been working with for, like, the past five years, he I've discussed it with plenty of times, as well as discussed gender and lots of things. I'm, I've been really open with him, and he's been really accepting, and he doesn't try and get stuff out of me that I might not want to talk about. He's pretty good mm-hmm. about waiting for me to bring up what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and that's been extremely helpful. He's honestly the best therapist I've ever had. And mm-hmm. he's been with right. me through both my roughest and my best mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and now it's funny that we're finding, we're finding therapists who are, not just like, you know, okay, you know, you had to find a queer therapist in order to talk about that, but you're finding people who, now that they've, they've gotten rid of that stigma that it's not a mental health condition, but understanding the complexities of our lives and who are able to do that and to find someone to have been there with you as you, you go, life is a journey, as you go through talking yeah. about it, but without judgment, you know, to understand that this is, this is who you are, you know. Yeah. Well, well. We're going to take a quick break here, and um, 
I want to talk a little bit more about not only uh, you being asexual, but we talked. To, you told me a little bit about how that affects people who have autism. And we'll be right back, okay? Yeah. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we're talking with Nathan William Brown, um, and Nathan is a peer mentor, and one of the things that you talk about is being asexual and also being differently abled, and part of what a peer mentor does is someone who has been through the system and recognized it. As you were in the system and you were coming across more and more people, what made you recognize that there there was this need to talk about it? And was there like when you would come out to someone, you would see someone who was, you know, asexual and who also maybe had a disability and you would tell them about, you know, your experience with them and talk to them. Was it just like, you know, that aha moment where they were suddenly like, I found my tribe, where they too have been living in isolation uh, sometimes, but I'd say it's not that dramatic. It's it's more fluid in their reaction, but it's it basically it's kind of a slow progress towards that realization a lot of times. Um, okay. and and that's how it was for me too. Um, but like when I realized it, I guess would be seeing some of the statistics kind of coming out from some of these surveys done on autism as well as other uh, studies done on disability within the LGBT community um, and seeing like a lot of interconnectedness between the two communities and finding like in one recent study of autism, they've found um, as much as 40% of people that are independent adults with autism have been identifying as non-heterosexual, mm. something other than heterosexual, which I just found amazing but made total sense be, just based on my own observations within the autism community, you know, talking to other adults on the spectrum. I see way more asexual people in the autism community than is normal for the general populace. It approaches on the recent Spark Autism study, and which is the big study you've been probably seen advertised on TV. 
the results they've gotten are 10% of respondents of independent adults are saying that they identify as asexual, which mm-hmm. is very high compared to the normal, like, general population, what people respond as asexual. And, you know, and I think that that's really important because, you know, I know people who, I have friends, actually I have two friends who have autistic children. And for both of them, one of them whose son is like now in college, it was like a light bulb for her to recognize that he might be interested in someone. Like she just thought of him as, you know, because asexual doesn't mean that you're just like this, this lump with nothing. You know, oh, no. you can have yeah. feelings, it, but but hers was like, well, you know, when someone when he a, says asexuality, no, they said, mm-hmm. they yeah, said you know, maybe, maybe what if oh, he wanted sorry. to date? You know, so what if he wanted to date? And she said, oh, he'd never want to do that. You know, so go ahead. Yeah. And what is asexuality? Yeah, asexuality. It's it's kind of a huge spectrum, just like kind of transgender community is a huge spectrum as well. Well, the asexuality mm-hmm. and even autism is a spectrum, but a whole lot mm-hmm. of spectrums. But um, asexuality, it can be a huge spectrum. Some people are completely asexual and aromantic, mm-hmm. where you have other people that are asexual and panromantic like me, meaning they want to have relationships, or they could be hetero or homoromantic as well, or biromantic. Mm-hmm. But so you got it basically when you're looking at the asexual spectrum, part of what you're looking at is to really clearly identify where you fall in there is your romantic interest as well. Mm-hmm. And whether you are aromantic or you have romantic interest in others. And then on top of that, there's also whether you have a libido or actual or even have sex on top of it because some people that are asexual are completely celibate where Mm -hmm. others have a libido may just, you know, handle it themselves or they may even have partners. And then you have people like me who are like, I don't have much of a like sex drive when it comes to other people. Like I don't really like sex, but I am completely willing to do it to make, to please a partner who I care about. And I do get like some sort of fulfillment just from pleasing my partner rather than getting actual sexual fulfillment for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and do you find like in conversations, is it hard for people to wrap their head around, head around, and oh, especially yeah. and like an LGBTQ, and, and it's it's funny because people want to brand or gauge everything about queer people based on their sex lives. And here, yeah. you're part of this community. How are, do they have difficulty wrapping their head around that? That you know. You know, we don't want to well, be judged based on what we do in the bedroom, but here, a part of our community, we want to talk about, you know, like, oh, well, yeah. asexual well, people, well, you know. It's kind of, it, it's kind of the an opposite but same battle that you see with, especially early on in the 
the LGBT community, which is like people wanting to identify you themselves and making assumptions or just believing that it doesn't exist or it's a mental illness, that it's some sort mm. of chemical imbalance or something is why you have no sexual attraction. But mm. it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's opposite in some ways, but it's the same where the LGBT community well, at least the LGB part of it has been defined exclusively based on who they are sexually attracted to. The asexual community is defined completely by lack of sexual attraction. So it creates this big divide, even though really it's fighting a very similar battle and there are many similarities between the struggles, but it, it just has had this divide for a long time and a lot of it is just like it was within the LGBT community, lack of understanding and knowledge on the subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, often like we talk about how there is transphobia within the LGBT, LGB mm-hmm. community. Um, and there's, and I would say that there's a sexual phobia within the LGB community how? I, I, I I'd go further in saying there's mm-hmm. transphobia within the trans community and there's asexual yeah, phobia within the asexual community because of it being them both being spectrums like they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there are there are unfortunately people in the trans community who won't accept agender people who mm-hmm. don't identify as either gender as well is there's people in the asexual community who exclusively think the asexual community should be about people who are completely celibate, don't have a libido, don't have a sex drive. I mean, in both communities, they're definitely the minority these days, but those mm-hmm. people still are there. And uh, you it's know, unfortunate. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. but in the part of, uh, you know, we've got this bigger civil rights, struggle where there's the LGBTQ. Uh, I mean, do you think that, you know, is the tent big enough? You know, because like people say like it's LGBTQIA and people are like, you know, well, why do we have to have all these, these people under the tent? Do we all need to be under the same tent? And what's the benefits of it? But what's the the disadvantages of being lumped into that whole group? I'd say the tent's a good thing. We need a huge, ginormous tent with lots of rooms, basically. We, we need uh-huh. to have space for these individual sub-communities within the, t- the greater whole to be able to get together and have their own community, but we also need to recognize that all these groups are part of the same struggle and that together we have way more power than we would alone. So you, okay. So, you know, you were a peer mentor, which is sort of, you know, you're there. It's, it's bigger than a caseworker. It's bigger than a social worker, but you're doing that. But then recently it's come to the next level of becoming LGBTQ abilities. What, brought that about and what is the focus 
What's the, the mission of LGBTQ abilities? Well, what brought it about, like, it's been kind of an interest. I've been involved in both LGBT communities as well as disabled communities in the past and recognized kind of the intersectionality of the two groups early on. But the real need for something in the community, that came from my work as a peer mentor. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't been doing it real long, but just that short time, a lot of the people they're, work, they're having me work with are people who are LGBT with disabilities who may not have any other person they know who's LGBTQ. And, you know, me being able to work with them as that person who they can talk to about anything related to that and them knowing that, they can talk to me about anything and I will not judge them. You know, okay. I found that's one of the things I honestly like most about this, the whole peer mentor programs is it's allowed for that. But I saw there's a need and the need is way too big for me as a, just an individual or even the, there's, there's multiple of us peer mentors who are LGBTQ but there's literally not enough uh, peer mentors to meet the need for it that I'm seeing and just for my personal work. And that's kind of what inspired me to get this group going is like, yeah, I can't put in 90 hours plus a week of what it would take to find every person I need to work with in the peer Uh mentor program. So I wanted to find something that I could, you know, put the reasonable amount of time in and help, you know, more people all at once and help create a community for them to come to and meet each other. Since mm-hmm. the peer mentor work is mostly one-on-one, makes it more difficult for me to, like, introduce them to each other and there weren't any groups in the community for them, you know, this specific subgroup of you know, two cultures. And that's kind of what led to creating it. And I guess the, I guess our mission statement would be to help promote the intersectionality of the disability and LGBTQ communities and help bridge the gap between them and connect different agencies and resources on both, in both communities together to create, you know, a better, more connected web of support and services. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I can recall one year in Lansing Pride, and one of the speakers was going to be Peg Ball. And it was like, okay, so first of all, there was this conversation about who needs to be there. And someone said, you know, well, we're going to have someone there to sign, okay, you know, the visible visible disability. We're going to have someone there who can do ASL, you know, so those are hearing impaired can can hear. And then sometimes, but you know, there are people who are in our community who are disabled. So there was the decision, you know, the invitation went to Peg Ball. But at the time where it was, there was no ramp to get up there. And it ended up being like the ramp from hell, you know, like it, it started like a block away, you know, because they couldn't, you know, to try and accommodate that. But yeah, 
you know, and, and, and we got her up there, but it sort of showed that that wasn't always there. There wasn't always that intentionality to make sure that people were, who are differently able have a seat at the table, that their voice is heard, and that their needs are met. And, you know, I was at a thing at um, for the Transgender Day of Visibility. Trans brother came in. He was in his wheelchair, and he talked about how difficult it was to get to this venue, to be here, mm-hmm. to participate in it. It's part of the advocacy part of LGBTQ abilities. Is that one of the things that you're trying to, to look at also to make sure that there is that place at the table, not just, you know, once in a while, but to make it where when you're talking about LGBTQ issues that it's automatically included that people with diff- who are differently abled are there? Yeah, like the the accessibility, like there's definitely an issue with accessibility, especially among LGBT groups. And there's an mm-hmm. issue with uh, um, kind of, I uh, can't think of the word right now, but there's the, an issue in both communities, though. There's an issue with uh-huh. the disability community accepting LGBT people, and there's an issue with the LGBT community making sure that their stuff is truly accessible. And even within the disability community at times, because accessibility, one of the big issues really is that accessibility can sometimes be expensive in a lot of organizations Uh, don't have the resources and what I'm trying hoping part of what I'm hoping to do is connect more resources together to find ways to make um, resources available for those organizations that may not have the way way to get those resources like they may not have money to they may have a building but may not have money to build a ramp and I'm hoping we can find grants and create a fund long-term to help provide, like, interpreters or funding to build ramps for other nonprofits in these two communities. But that's a long ways away. But that's one of the big issues even we've been coming across. I would like to have a, a sign language interpreter on staff just to be able for when it's needed, but sign language interpreters cost up to like 50 to $100 an hour. Mm. Uh, so it can be really difficult to get some of these accommodations too. And mm-hmm. that's part of our long-term goals is to meet not only with these other nonprofits and create a network that can help each other and, yeah, kind of bridge those gaps and bring all these communities together is the long-term goal. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be a lot of work and a long time. And, I mean, what's more important right now is creating support groups in the community for these people. And that's something we can do immediately. We have a handicap-accessible location that we're using. Um, and that's what we can offer now. But the goal ultimately is to get more accessibility at all times. I should always be in our thoughts as someone in a group that advocates for equality for all. 
it should always be in the back of our mind is how we can better make our place accessible to to all. You know, and I think that that's, like you said, that's something that, that's really important. It should always be there. And in some ways, you know, that it, it's important to be at the table to talk about it. But like in some ways, like when I was talking to them at Creating Change, like they said, well, the bigger organization, when they look at uh, the host hotel, they look at it being handicap accessible. But mm-hmm. I think that the more important issue, and, you know, so there's some advances that are going to happen you know, like you'll find a building that you're going to go into and it will have a ramp, okay? But the, the important part, too, which often that people forget about, is that support, that day-to-day, mm-hmm. you know, survival things. You know, I work with Lupus Detroit, and Lupus Detroit said there's people who are out there who are raising money for research and doing that. But when somebody is having that bad day and needs someone else to talk to, that's that sometimes that's the difference between life and death. You're providing yeah. support to people, not and only just support to them, but to their partners and family. How important is that? That is the most important part of what we do. Like that's why support groups are like first and foremost, and not just our support group, but encouraging others around the state and everywhere really to create support groups in their community for these people who don't have them because that is I believe like one of the biggest issues like loneliness with disability or even being LGBT and having no one you can talk to can get overwhelming and that's one thing I've seen with the people that I work with as a peer mentor is like I work with the one older gay man who has no friends that are gay. He, you know, he talks maybe to a couple of his neighbors and to me and his caseworker, basically. And, like, that is my main reason for getting this going and starting getting the support group started is to give people a place they can come to and talk. Like, you know, and yeah, we're we're just getting started right now, and you know it, you know it's gonna take a while to fully get off the ground, but you know we we want to just make sure that we have this resource here available for those who don't have anything else, because they're out there, and like I know just from my from dealing with my own mental health stuff, like I isolated for years. And that's part Mm -hmm. of why I kind of stopped looking into my sexuality and stopped, you know, just kind of put it on the back burner, didn't think about it for years. And it was because I was so overwhelmed with the mental illness issues, with the constant depression that I would just, I literally just isolated in my room for years. And... You know, I had no one to talk to, and there weren't support groups I felt comfortable with. You know, Uh years before, kind of before I ended up real severely in the mental health system about 10 years ago, I got a lot of rejection from people in the LGBT community because I didn't fit the mold at the time, you Uh know. And same with my experiences 
and disability groups when I tried getting involved in them was, well, for one, a lot of disability groups you'll find are kind of, some of them were rather clicky, which is kind of groups and community groups in general can be. But that was what I found with my local groups that I went to. And I didn't feel comfortable discussing sexuality and those issues related to disability. Within it, even though it's an issue, sexuality is a big issue within the disabled community and something that's not discussed about either. Uh Rather, whether LGBT or heterosexual, it's not discussed enough within the disabled community. And I wanted... uh Yeah. Because, I mean, I was at um, another conference and people were talking about it, and it was like, you know, well, so the ideal of sexuality and having a disabled person in that conversation, it was just like, you know, well, why? And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, why? Yeah, why I, not? I feel... I feel asexual people at times are often the only people accepted for their sexuality within the disabled community Mm, by non-disabled people, Uh which is unfortunate, especially when you're looking at, like, developmental disabilities and stuff, is you got people who literally don't want these people having sex. Uh And Uh that's, that's one of the big issues I've seen. You have people living in group homes who have a sexuality that aren't allowed to express their sexuality in any way with another person because, Uh. or at least it's very difficult for them because of the combination of their circumstances and literally living in often group homes that are run by very religious people who do not allow for open exploration of sexuality. Many group homes are Christian-run. Uh-huh. And they uh, do, they generally don't directly discriminate because of the laws, but you get a lot of that indirect discrimination. Those and you know, annoying and that, comments and stuff. Uh-huh. And that, that crazy stuff like, sex is bad. Although, you know, they, you know what they're doing it. But if you're in... Yeah. Uh, a, a place where it's for a mental health thing, well, whether it's heterosexual, same-sexual, asexual, they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to see it, they don't want you to do it, they don't think well, that you should do it, and they suddenly want to regulate yeah. your sex Yeah, well, life. With, mental mm-hmm. health, with mental health, they kind of have this mentality we should all, at times it feels like they have this mentality that we should all be treated like kids our whole life, especially if we have a developmental disability, which has been proven over and over again to literally only serve to inhibit the person's growth of independence. Uh And we have proven that over and over again, that many of these people who have been stuck in groups, homes, or living with their parents their whole life have the capability to be on their own if given the right opportunities. Uh And, And, you know, and it... Isn't it also sort of like saying that you're less than? Okay, because like you see, like yeah. some people, well, you know, we want them to make sure that they either uh, have some type of birth control so that they don't reproduce. But what you're saying is that this person is less than, and the thought that they might 
reproduce themselves or someone similar. Yeah. It's like this is this is less than, less than human. Oh, and the the reproduction issue is the biggest part of it. Even mm-hmm. many that are supportive of sexual rights for for people with especially developmental disabilities, many of them are completely opposed to these people having or starting families. And mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand where some of that comes from, but at the same time, you're you're doing the same thing that we were doing back in the 1930s when we inspired the Holocaust. Uh-huh. You know, eugenics uh-huh. is not something we should be practicing as a society, and it does not end well. I mean... Uh-huh. If if you want to know what that type of society turns out with, like read Brave New World sometime. Like, uh-huh. like it is not a good model for society because when you start with that, it can get out of hand very quickly. We cannot monitor and control someone's sexual and reproductive rights. When we try to do that, it can only lead to disaster long term and. You know, and and even the motivations behind it are completely flawed and based off circumstantial outdated evidence generally. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, when we look at it, people with developmental disabilities and disabilities in general have many abilities that are overlooked by society and often we can lead independent lives, even even the majority of people living in group homes right now could potentially live on their own given the right supports. And it would be cheaper both for society and for the individual to do so. You know, we need yeah. to stop shoving yeah. people into essentially daycares their whole life and actually start teaching people living skills and that's what we're starting to see more and more of, which is a good thing, but we still have a long ways to go. Well, well, it doesn't that make, you know, to have a peer mentor to me then makes it even more important not only to have peer mentors but to encourage people to do that because you have been through the system. You have been there, and you can be in a group setting and recognize someone who's going through something similar to you or give them really advice, help, support, and how they can live, like you said, outside of a group home because you have walked through that path. You understand yeah. support. You you can understand it. I mean, you're a peer mentor. Do you see other people stepping up in that role? And how do we develop groups that are really providing support on how to to get through life how so that we don't end up isolating people but where people can take and turn that corner i mean you've been through it and you know like you say and you haven't finished the reached the finish line you are still working with yourself developing and strengthening yourself but you're able then to take some of that and do that how important is is to have more peer mentors Oh, very important. Like, specifically because of what we are allowed to do that caseworkers aren't. You know, and not just 
I mean, the experience is a huge part of it, of course, but like to me, one of the biggest things that I've seen is really freedom with what we're allowed to take the individuals to do, which like the past models did not allow for at all. Like I'm actually allowed to take uh, someone I work with to the bar. You know, I'm not allowed to drink with them, but they're allowed to drink, you know, have a beer or two if they've never been to a bar but don't feel comfortable going alone. I'm allowed to take them into those community environments that typical CMH workers can't take them to, you know, and actually let them get really fully in, into the community, you know, in ways that with all the restrictions of the former models didn't allow for and basically caused more segmentation with the former models they were using. Because, you know, before, before the peer mentors came along, your main support people that took people in the community were through community living services or community living supports. And they had lots of restrictions about the, what they were doing, and almost none of them had been through or experienced it themselves. So you had a lot higher risk of people taking advantage of the individuals as well. Um, I mean, I don't say it wouldn't say it was the majority of cases, but there was a much higher risk with that than someone who's actually lived through it. You know, just typically, yeah, you've lived through it. You're not going to want to harm someone else who's living through it. You're less mm -hmm. likely to. Mm -hmm. But really, yeah, there's far more freedom with this peer mentor program. Like, I honestly, the other day, I took a client of mine to an adult video store because that's what he wanted to do, and he didn't feel comfortable going alone, but he had no one else he could go with, you know? And uh -huh. he'd never even been to one before because he didn't know where they were at. He didn't know how to get there. You know, he's not real good with transportation, but, you know, I could take him there. And, you know, we didn't uh -huh. do anything. I didn't, you know, uh -huh. and, yeah, he could look there. And now he knows where it's at so he can go back on his own. Uh-huh. You know? Uh, and it's okay. it's little things like that that uh -huh. weren't allowed to before, especially like that. This guy's a lonely guy who literally has no other friends that are gay, no one to talk to about it besides me. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. I mean, it's like you like the ultimate wingman. You know, it's like, okay, we yeah. can do this. I've got your back, you know, and you, I'm going to make sure that you get through it. And you like you said, like you took him to a club, but I'm going to let you experience this. I'm going to make sure that you go there, that you're safe, and get you home safely. You know, but yeah. but you so that you can experience and and recognize life. You know, and you know, you never know. Being isolated, you're not living up to your full potential. You'll never know what they what they might could possibly do. But not sitting at home, isolated, being depressed which often can lead to, you know, harming oneself, suicide. You know, we hear all this, yeah. we wonder how many people who are living in isolation, if they had a peer support group, might not do that, might be able to, to see that there's, it might not get better immediately, but there's life 
at the end of the rainbow that it can be better than what it is. Yeah. Well, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, I want to talk about specifically about LGBTQ abilities, you know, what people can expect to see. And so we're going to get on that when we come right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we're talking about LGBTQ abilities. So, Nathan, you've started the group. Um, I know that there's going to be two support groups and an advocacy uh, component. What are the two support groups like? Well, they're basically just like your typical community support group. I try to keep it fairly open and not, I don't try to censor people in any ways. I understand people are going to screw up with words all the time and uh-huh. stuff, but uh, the biggest thing about the support group is what happens in support group stays in support group and what's talked <laughs> about stays there. Uh-huh. You know, it's, that's basically the, the main rule that I ask people follow and you know, the the primary group is right now specific to um, LGBTQ people with disabilities, and then we're having one for uh, families, friends, allies, uh, support workers, you know, anyone who kind of falls in outside of that. And that was to kind of create a separate space. And mm-hmm. we're just kind of, we're still trying out that. We're going to have our first, like, friends and allies um, meeting next month and we'll just kind of see where things go from there in terms of the support groups, whether we're going to continue doing two separate or eventually merge back to one. Uh, We split them because of some talks within our group. You know, some people wanted to be exclusive, which I completely understand. And that's kind of why we have the two separate groups. Um, mm-hmm. is to make sure that people that are LGBTQ with a disability feel more comfortable to having their own group and that they don't have to worry about feeling uncomfortable or anything. Um, but, yeah, it's primarily there to serve as support. We just kind of go around the circle and I let people share whatever they want to share, basically. And, we do introductions to start and then go around in a circle. I ask, like, 
anyone have a story or anything they want to share and we just take turns kind of going around and talking with each other and discussing about what's discussed, what's talked about. And... Now, have you ha- have you heard any? Have you had any interest from other uh, disability advocacy, disability support groups, and maybe coming and talking to them about what makes it unique? What's unique as far as having someone in their group who are LGBTQ or, you know, or making, letting them know that, like, if it's a broader organization and they find someone who's in their group who's LGBTQ, who's not quite doing it, that they can refer them to you? Uh So that's kind of what I've been trying to do, especially just getting, you know, starting up, you know, fairly, fairly recently, you know, mm-hmm. is a lot of like the early work is really networking with starting any organization. And that's a lot of what I've been doing. I have pretty good connections with the Lansing community. Um, there's an organization I work with known as Aspire that is, mm-hmm. uh, they are uh, like a social coaching and stuff. They mo- work mostly with people with developmental disabilities, but I'm, friends with the director of that organization, which is fairly large, and, like, they know, like, if they have members, they can refer them to us. And also, we, uh, Salas Center has helped us a ton. They're the, they're the group that hosts us. We have our meetings at the Salas Center, downtown Lansing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, Piwa, the director, has helped a ton in getting helped a ton in allowing us to do this and get this support going. Um, and then, too, I've been in contact with some of the other larger disability groups in the area, as well as contacted some of the local LGBT groups. But right now we're focusing primarily on local. But uh-huh. what, one of the things we're also trying to do that – I mean, it's probably going to be a month or so before it's fully operational, but I'm we're building a website right now, and we're planning to have a directory, not just local, but statewide, broken up by county, and we're going to start basically keeping track of accessible uh, LGBT groups as well as LGBT-friendly disability groups, as, and then we're going to have a separate section that is specifically for groups that are specific to LGBT people with disabilities in general or specific disabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, so you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you one know, of the big yeah. projects. Is it? Uh-huh. Because, you know, LGBTQ organizations, I mean, you know, like they're doing a whole lot of stuff. And we know that you know, in our world that often that we end up going to, you know, mainstream organizations, like you said, like if you need a wheelchair, there might not be a gay organization that you can go to, but so you're going to go to an organization that that sort of really hits it. Are you looking at helping and knowing that, I mean, if you went to some LGBT organizations and you said, you know, well, you really need to do this, and they'd say, well, I can't do that right now. Are you looking to be like the bridge to help maybe like sort of help help them work collaboratively with 
non-LGBT organizations that, that help people with disabilities to sort of like bridge that gap where they can work collaboratively to help the community? That's, that's definitely a big part of it. Like that's kind of what I, I mean by bridging the gap is, yeah, building these, this network of connections of different groups that can collaboratively work together towards shared interests. Uh-huh. And, you know, that that definitely is applicable when it comes to resources, especially for running groups and stuff. Like, uh-huh. we don't really have much money right now. That's uh-huh. part of being a new newer organization is we're pretty much self-funded right now. And, you know, so it's difficult for us to provide the resources we'd like to be able to provide. But so that is a big part of the networking right now is trying to find those other organizations who might have available resources and finding grants around the area, not just to hopefully create a fund for ourselves, but also for other organizations that they might apply for that could help them become more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, a big one, one of the biggest fairly simple ones most places can do is at least at the very minimum have a place have your meeting place be some place that is at least wheelchair accessible i mean sign language like i mentioned sign language interpreting that's a Uh big one we want to get to because there i know there is a lack of resources out there for the deaf community and especially when it comes to getting involved in non-death-specific stuff. And that is something that I'm hoping that we can collaborate with other groups too and, you know, hopefully eventually find a way to provide that service for our group if when it's needed and make, it a, and make sure that other groups know how to get a hold of services and funding for that type thing. In the meantime, I'm taking sign language courses. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, because I can't afford a sign language interpreter, I guess I, I figure it's cheaper to take classes. Mm-hmm. Are so there? That and my boss can, my employer can pay for it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Being a peer yeah. mentor. Mm-hmm. Are there? When you got ready to do this, is there any place like across the country that you see that is successfully offering these kind of programs or that you can look at as a model? Or are you really doing like some long-term, do you see them coming to you saying like, how do we duplicate this? That's that's kind of more what I'm hoping to see long-term is uh-huh. us being a resource for other people to be able to start up support groups and advocate for these groups and help them find their local resources mm-hmm. to be able to start that. You know, I'm, I've kind of one of my natural skills, like kind of comes from the whole Asperger's is like when I approach things, I kind of hyper analyze everything. Mm-hmm. And that's come in very useful when it comes to organizing stuff and finding like basically collaborating and finding connections to be able to get these things done 
Mm-hmm. Like when I was in college, that was a big part of what I did. Uh, and a lot of the groups I worked with in college was just learning how to network within the college to, I could have, and I learned the system so well that I could literally think of an idea for a campus-wide event and have it fully funded by the end of the day by the, by the university and get it approved and fully funded by the end of the day. Like, and it takes a certain type of mindset, but that's what a lot of community organizing is, is networking, kind of finding those weird loopholes to get things you need and till you're eventually big enough that you can really, that, you know, you can sustain yourself without having to go through these weird back channels that you often have to when you're first Mm -hmm. organizing. So, I mean, I know that you're doing it. Okay, there's some things that I'd like to know, like if wants to support LGBTQ abilities. I know right now you're basically, like you said, you're self-funding, you're passing the hat. But if, say, someone maybe had a family member who struggled with this and they recognized that um, the importance of, of helping this happen, how can someone support LGBTQ? Q abilities and contact you. Uh, we have a Facebook as well as an email. You can contact us at right now. Our Facebook is you can just search us on Facebook. It's LGBTQ abilities, and our email is LGBTQ abilities at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Hopefully soon we'll have the website up within a month or two and we'll mm-hmm. actually be getting a business account started soon so we can actually start taking in donations and basically handling all the legal side of stuff. Now that winter break's over, we're going to be handling all that. So hopefully we'll be able to start accepting donations through the website soon and mm-hmm. getting off the ground a bit more. But right now, yeah, you can contact us through Facebook or email. Um, and, I mean, you can even call me. My phone number's on the on the Facebook group. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, anyone, the best thing you can do to support us is help spread the word right now. And if you know someone who, who wants to find a support group, and especially if they're in the Lansing area, you know, just let them know this is available. And, you know, if you'd like to help out too, regardless of whether you identify as LGBTQ with or disabled, you can come to our advocacy meetings, which are our main, like, planning meetings and discussion meetings, which are open to everyone, including allies. And those are the fourth Thursday of each month at Salas Center. And, and where's the Salas Center record? Where is it uh, located it's at? right downtown Lansing, not far from the main Cata bus station. Okay. Like right around the corner from the main bus depot. And that, those are the planning meetings? Okay. And, yep. how, and for the support meetings, how often do they meet? Uh, the the support group for LGBTQ people with disabilities, that's once a month as well, That at least for now. 
um, and that is on the 10th. Or, or mm-hmm. sorry, that was the 10th of this month, but the second Thursday of each month. Mm-hmm. So we have it the second Thursdays, the main support group. The third Thursday will be after starting in February will be the partners, allies, and family group. Um, and then the fourth Thursday is the advocacy meeting, which is mm-hmm. where we look at local and state advocacy issues and what we can do and look at connecting with different groups on shared interests, Mm -hmm. such as like one big one that both communities definitely want in place is uh, bathroom accessibility. You Mm -hmm. know, we need more single, single use bathrooms that people that may need assistance or something or may need more space and privacy because of their disability can use as well as a space that transgender people can feel more comfortable using because all single use bathrooms can be co-ed like they don't have to which always throws me off when I go to a restaurant or some place that has single use bathrooms and they're gendered it mm-hmm. doesn't yeah, seem yeah. to make sense. <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't make sense at all, you know. I mean, at home we don't have that. You know, you go in, you shut yeah. the door, you do what you got to do, you know. Um, now, on your other identity as being asexual, I know that there are people who are out there who maybe are struggling with it, uh, looking for support for that. Is there a support group? Or where can someone go if they want to talk about being asexual or get more information about it? Uh, Again, your best resource may be online. There's a good website, uh, ASEN, asexual, uh, what's it called? There is a big asexuality website. It's just asexuality.org, actually. And there's also a good Facebook group that I'm a part of. Um, I will get you the name of that in one second. I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh-huh. Yep, it is just asexuality on Facebook. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, pretty uh-huh. straightforward. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, they're both really good resources. The asexuality uh, Facebook group, you ha- it's a closed group, but you can request to join, and they're pretty good. They just ask a couple questions. Um, But it is a very supportive community and very active. There's people Mm -hmm. posting throughout the day, every day on there. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Nathan, I want to to thank you so much for being a guest here and talking about, I mean, and it just sort of shows, you know, people are, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion and we talk about, you know, how we are all unique, and everyone needs to be accepted for who they are. I want to thank you for coming on and talking about and sharing your your information, talking about it, and shedding some light on this. You know, people are differently abled, and that's part of the fabric of this, and we want more people to be included and to help and help them and be supportive of them. I appreciate the work that you're doing, and, I mean, to go through your journey 
and come out on the other side and now being helping people. That is such a model to everyone. Part of how it can get better is by sharing your experience. And I think that you are making it better, not only for people who are asexual, but people who are on the Asperger's uh, spectrum and people living with, who are with disabilities who are differently abled. I want to thank you, Anne. I wish you all the success in the world, and I'm going to try to get up there to Lansing, you know, for one of those planning meetings. So I want yeah, you no to. Problem. Well, again, thank you so much for being my guest today, and yeah, I hope you'll stay in, stay in touch and let me know about your meetings. I will post your meetings to, you know, the dates of it so that people in that area can try and get involved and stay involved with you. I want to thank today's guest, peer mentor with LGBTQ abilities, Nathan William Brown. Monthly meeting dates and activities for LGBTQ abilities can be found on the organization's Facebook page. You can listen to this and our past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.